0: I kind of feel sorry for Mrs. Jonah. I can imagine what she thought as her husband came home and said, Honey, sit down. (laughs) You wouldn't believe what happened to me. But no doubt his story circulated widely enough that it made an impact on people around him, because we read that the entire city of Nineveh, the capital of the ancient Assyrian Empire, came to know Jesus Christ. The greatest revival on history is found in Jonah chapter 3. You can understand that this book has been fraught with much skepticism and criticism. How can you expect me to swallow a story like this? People will say. I just can't buy that one. There's a lot of things in the Bible I believe in, but then there are things in the Bible I don't believe in. and This is one of the things I don't believe in. It must have been a myth. There are some, even Christians, who disregard the story as being literal. They say, well, this is an allegory. It's an analogy of Nebuchadnezzar defeating Israel. And the whale is a type of Nebuchadnezzar and Jonah is a type of Israel being swallowed but eventually delivered. There are some who say that actually it's just a dream. Jonah fell asleep in a boat. He dreamt all sorts of weird things. You know, when you're going back and forth in the sea, you can dream all sorts of fanciful tales. Then there are those who say that Jonah was out fishing or out sailing or something and uh, jumped overboard because of the storm and he happened to find a dead whale floating around. And he sought refuge in the carcass of a dead whale. Well, the best way to answer those critics is by looking at Jesus' own words. Now I figure if you can't believe Jesus, you can't believe anyone. The Pharisees came to him and said, We want a sign from you that really proves that you're the Messiah. Give us a sign. Jesus said, A wicked... An adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign shall be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, or the great fish, for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus called Jonah a prophet, referred to him as a literal historical personage, Jesus was not accommodating to the ignorance of his time by the language and the context by which he spoke. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Jesus' resurrection and burial for three days and three nights was literal. And he referred to a literal historical event as the sign that people of that generation would know. And then, Jesus said, the men of Nineveh will rise up with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Now if Jesus was wrong, I would say he's a liar. If he knew in his mind that this was just some mythological story, how do we know then that other things Jesus said? are not accurate. Like, you must be born again. Like, believe in the name of the only Son of God, and you'll be... Maybe that's just allegorical, fictitious. And that's the problem when you depart from the authority of Scriptures, and by the way, more and more churches and schools are doing that. Deciding, as if they are God, which stories they'll believe and which stories they won't. but I think you can rest assured that this is uh, the Word of God. Uh, there was a great story that Carl Henry used to tell. Carl Henry was a theologian, still around I think, old though. In his younger days in college, he said he used to go to the public forum at his college and, and just have open-air preaching. Imagine, that's kind of difficult. Just walk up to a crowd of people and just start sharing. And it was very effective. But he brought in all sorts of interesting characters just by virtue that he did it in an open forum outside of the college. And one day a skeptic came by and talked to Carl Henry and said, interrupted the crowd, said, you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, do you? He said, yes I do. You don't believe that God can do miracles, do you? Yes I do, said Carl Henry. Well, what about the story of Jonah? How can a man survive in the belly of a whale or great fish, whatever you think it is, for three days and three nights? Because we know that there are really no animals or species of mammal that has a mouth that large. There's no air. What about the gastric juices from the stomach? How could a man survive? And started asking all these questions about Jonah. And Carl Henry said, Sir, I don't know the answers to all your questions. But when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. The crowd kind of chuckled, Then the skeptic retorted, Well, how do you know that Jonah will even be in heaven? And Carl Henry smiled and said, Well, if he's not, then in that case you ask him. (laughs) Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The time at which this guy is doing his thing was around the time of Jeroboam II. We read in the book of Second Kings that the borders of Israel were expanded during his reign according to the prophecy of Jonah the son of Amittai. That's what it says in Second Kings. And uh, we know that Jonah was from a town called Gath-Hefer up in the Galilee region. His contemporaries were the prophet Amos and the prophet Hosea. If you were looking for a theme of this book, the theme is mercy. You know, everybody has controversial questions about what was going on inside of this whale. And how could that be possible and and all of the ramifications. When the greater treasure and lesson of this book isn't what's going on inside the great fish, but what's going on inside Jonah. There's more than one miracle in this book. I mean, even if you were to throw out the idea of a great fish swallowing a man, you still have to deal with the last chapter. There's the miracle of the vine. There's the miracle of the sun scorching it. And there's the greatest miracle of all, and that is everyone in the city of Nineveh turning to the Lord in mass repentance. I said that the theme was mercy, twofold. One, mercy upon a nation that is against God, and two, mercy upon a pouting prophet. A strong-willed man who wouldn't go God's way and God refused to let him go, God wrestled him until he cried uncle. God was merciful. God was faithful. God is patient, but God is very persistent, as Jonah is going to find out even in chapter 1. By the way, the word Jonah means dove. I chuckle at that because a dove is a peaceful, gentle, amiable, even obedient creature. And Jonah was not a dove. Jonah was the kind, if God said, go that way, he'd say, no, I'm going that way. And we're going to find out perhaps the reason why he was so disobedient. Uh, God tells him in the first couple of verses to go to Nineveh. To understand, perhaps, why Jonah went the other way, you've got to understand something about the Assyrians. Now, Nineveh was built by Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord and back in Genesis. It was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were known for their wickedness. In fact, turn over a couple, turn right and go down the street till you hit Nahum, the book of Nahum. Look at chapter 3. there are denunciations against Nineveh in this language. Woe to the bloody city! It is full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip, the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charge with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Archaeology has discovered records of the brutality of the Ninevites. One king went on record as one who would take prisoners and skin them while they were still alive until they died, cut their heads off, peel the skin from their skulls, and make huge piles of skulls at the entrances to the city of Nineveh as a warning. And it would be a powerful warning, you can see. Don't mess with the Ninevites. They went beyond that and they would cut off appendages, noses, lips, ears, and make piles of those. Just brutal. The Ninevites had a hatred. Toward almost every neighboring nation wanting to subjugate them completely. And you can understand why the Jews, whom the Ninevites hated with the passion, wouldn't want to get near Nineveh. And you can understand why Jonah wouldn't want to go to Nineveh, why he'd want to go the opposite direction because of the brutality of the city. Well, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. How, we don't exactly know. Perhaps an audible voice, perhaps a vision, perhaps a dream. But somehow the Word of God came to this prophet. And I need to underscore something because God still speaks in this generation. People don't listen, perhaps, like they used to listen, but God still speaks. How does God speak? Well, He speaks in a number of ways. Hebrews 1 tells us that God, who had different ways and in different times, spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets... In other words, God did it in a variety of ways. He's not limited to one way. Has in these last days spoken to us by His only Son, whom He has made heir of all things, and through whom also He made the worlds. Jesus Christ is God's final word to the world. Everything we want to know about the character of God is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And God speaks to us in a variety of ways, principally through His word. You know, it's interesting, Elijah the prophet, who was used to seeing dramatic ways of God moving and speaking, was down in the Sinai desert one day. He was waiting to hear God's voice. As he was down there, he stood in this cleft of the rock and he saw the fire sweep by him, but God wasn't in the fire. An earthquake, God wasn't in the earthquake. The wind swept by and God wasn't in the wind, but a still, small voice spoke and it was God. And sometimes we are looking for the word of the Lord in Cecil B. DeMille-type venues. We want the dramatic kind of things. You know, we want the heavens to crack open and fire from heaven consuming our enemies and the room shaken and angels appearing. But God often speaks in the still, small voice and in an arena like this where you're just waiting on God, studying the Scripture. Who knows what God is speaking to the hearts of people around you tonight. Just in the quietness of your own heart before the Lord. As the word of the Lord would come to you and give you direction and give you a message. Now this was God's message. Arise, get up Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. In other words, or actually in Hebrew it's, their wickedness is staring me in the face. Now God's very patient, but there comes a time when God is finished being patient with a generation or a nation. And Romans chapter 2 speaks of God being patient, but that the nation can store up wrath until the day of wrath. There comes a time when God just intervenes. The cup of indignation is full and God begins to move and judge. He says, Jonah, I've had enough of the Ninevites. Their wickedness is staring me in the face. I'm going to judge them. Unless there are some changes, I'm going to judge them. So I want you to be my spokesman. I'm going to send you from Gath Heifer, 500 miles east to Assyria. And I want you to give them this message. Well, actually, the message isn't delineated here, but it is later on. Basically, it says, 40 days, you're going to be wiped out. That was the message. Short, sweet, to the point. Now, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the money, paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You know, this is a disobedient man. At least Moses, when God commissioned him, only argued with God. That was bad enough. No, God, how can I do it? Uh, I don't know if I can pull it off. I can't speak. Then finally he said, send somebody else. He had excuses. Jeremiah came to that kind of a point. He was in the the dungeon for being a faithful witness. And he said, God, I am not going to speak one more word in your name. I quit my ministry job. These people aren't receiving it. They're, They're disrespectful. I quit. But Jonah splits. God says, go 500 miles east. Jonah buys a ticket to go 2,000 miles due west to the coast of Spain. That's where Tarshish was. It's as if he got a compass and he said, okay, let's figure this out. God says that way, that means I'll go that way. In the exact opposite direction where God called him. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. Let's speculate for a moment. And then we'll come up with the real reason. Now, it could be that the kind of the city that Nineveh was would not receive this lone Jewish preacher's message. God says, Cry to Nineveh, that great city. They supposed that there were between four and six million people living in and around the city of Nineveh at that time. It was a city that was 19 miles in diameter, walls that reached 100 feet high. Sort of like Babylon, you could have chariot races abreast, three abreast, on top of the walls of Nineveh. Fifteen hundred guard towers. Even within the city limits, there were huge fields to graze cattle along with the buildings and the population. The idea of going to Nineveh and saying, 40 days, you'll be wiped out. Maybe to Jonah, Jonah just seemed totally ridiculous. They'd laugh him to scorn. And we could understand that if that was his excuse. It's still disobedient and wrong, but we could understand his thinking. Secondly, it could be that it was dangerous. I mean, I just described to you the kind of people the Assyrians were. Jonah didn't want to be another skull on the pile. He didn't want his lips standing out in front of some doorway. He just said, forget it. I'm not going to Nineveh. I'm too scared but the real reason lies over in chapter 4. And I just want you to look ahead. In verse 2 he prayed to the Lord, he said, Ah, oh Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, because I know that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in lovingkindness, and one who relents from doing harm. Did you get that? The reason he fled is because he knew that God was gracious and would forgive the Ninevites, and he didn't want them forgiven. I knew you'd do this, God. I should have known that you'd be merciful and forgive and be gracious. That's why I didn't want to go. I hate the Ninevites. I hate what they mean. I hate what they've done. I knew you'd do this, Lord. Now there's a few lessons to learn in that. First of all, God's patience does not equal God's indifference. God will let people go for a while like Nineveh until it reaches a point, and God will act. And if there's not turning, there will be judgment. And a lot of people mistake the patience of God for the indifference of God. I've met people who say, Hey, well, I've gotten away with this. I didn't get caught. Yeah, but that's wrong. Yeah, but I've done this for a few years, and God didn't strike me dead yet. God didn't care. God does care, and there will come a time when God will show you that He cares. Second lesson, it is difficult for us to watch God bless people. We'd rather see God just smoke them. It's human nature. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Ninevites have been this way. Oh, get him, God. Destroy him. And he came after God came to him the second time and he preached the message. Forty days and then will be overthrown. But because they repented, God relented of his message and forgave them. And Jonah said, "Oh, I knew this would happen. The Bible says that we are to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Now, the first part of that's easy. It's easy to weep with those who weep. But what about rejoicing with those who rejoice? When you see somebody blessed and you're not blessed, it is difficult because of the sinful human nature to rejoice with those that God blesses. And so it was with Jonah. I don't want you to... God, if you're going to bless anybody, bless me. Bless the Jews. Bless Israel. Don't bless the Ninevites. Don't be gracious to them. That's why I ran. Just can't stand God blessing. There's a third lesson before we move on, and that is wrong concepts of God breeds wrong behavior. If you think wrongly about the character of God and the presence of God, you will behave wrongly. Your theology determines your behavior. How is it that a prophet of God could think he could get away from the presence of the Lord? Remember what the book of Psalms tells us, and they were written at the time of Jonah, by the way. Where can I go from your presence or flee from your spirit? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you'll guide me, your right hand will hold me. We see disobedience and rebellion breeds blindness spiritually. And Jonah at this point is blind to the truth of God. Wrong belief breeds wrong behavior. Uh, I want you to notice something in verse 3. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And it says he went down into the ship. And pretty soon he's going to go down into the mouth of a whale. Now, in the thinking of the world, Jonah is going up, not down. Because he's an independent thinker. He's going to do what he wants to do. He's not going to let anybody push him around. And a worldling would say, hey, that's a step up, man. You're becoming free and independent. But in God's eyes, you're going down all the time. And Jonah will keep going down, 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 down until he turns back to God and God will lift him up. And then it says he paid the fare and he went down into it. Now, he paid money, but he never got to his destination. (laughs) He paid probably a lot of money to go to Spain. He never made it. When you are disobedient, you will pay for it. You'll pay the full fare. And you won't get to where your destination is. You'll never be fully satisfied. When you go God's way, God will pay the fare and you'll get to your destination. I think of the flip side of this truth, of this coin, is with Jochebed, the mother of Moses, who by faith put her little infant Moses in a basket and let him go sailing one day down the Nile River just trusting God. God is in your hands. And the Egyptians saw this little basket and they found the baby, and Pharaoh's daughter said, I want to keep this baby as my own. Go find a Hebrew woman to to raise this child. And guess who they picked? Moses' mother. So Moses Moses was able to be raised by his own mother at the expense of Egypt in the will of God. God paid the fare and the destination was reached. Whereas here, Jonah paid for it and never got to where he wanted to go. He was never fully satisfied. He ended up in the deep. And so he left. He's going to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. At this point, he thought he was through with God. But guess what? God wasn't through with him. Now compare the first part of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. But Jonah. God says, do this. But Jonah. Now look at verse 4. But the Lord. See, the story isn't over with. I'm done with God. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Now, you've got to sympathize in the rest of this story with these, this group of people on the boat. If you've ever been on a ship in rough sea, you can sympathize. It gets scary. I've been out on the sea a few times. I used to go deep sea fishing with my father out of Newport Beach. And he'd take us out at night. And the boat would go way out into the sea. All night long it would be traveling. You'd sleep on the boat. And sometimes you get into rough sea, and you have to sleep in that kind of a situation. It's horrible. And I, I lost my cookies a few times as a kid. <laughs> These are experienced merchant sailors, but they've never been in a storm like this one. Because God sent the storm to get his prophet back. The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest so that the ship was about to be broken up and the mariners were afraid. Now, in chapter 1, the word afraid is used three times. In each case, it is used in Hebrew differently to mean a different thing. First of all, they were afraid and every man cried out to his own God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now up to this point, up to the point he got on board, the problem existed between two parties, Jonah and God. No one else was involved. God told Jonah to do something. Jonah disobeyed. No other people were involved in this transaction until Jonah, in his sin, stepped on board. And at that moment, he infected other people with the results of his disobedience. Point being, sin can infect other people. A disobedient Christian is a menace. A disobedient Christian is a menace. His life of sin can infect, and the results of that can be far-reaching into the lives of other people. Jonah got on board, and these sailors have no idea why there's such a tempest on the sea. All they know is that they're afraid, and they're afraid because of their circumstances. they've been sailors, but they have never seen a storm like this ever before. They didn't know what to do. They started throwing the cargo over the ship. Now, keep something in mind. These are merchant marines. Their money comes from delivering cargo from one port to the next. But in a storm, they're not merchants, they're survivors. It's amazing how storms of life change our values. Things that are important at one time become less important during the storm. Have you noticed that? I've worked in emergency rooms and I've seen plenty of people come into the ER who've had heart attacks, who are dying or who die in the emergency room and their families around them. I've watched the family's reaction. And I'll never forget a man who came into the emergency room with a heart attack. And the doctor said, I don't think he's going to make it. And she was in hysterics because she said, we had an argument today. And it was over stupid, petty little things, but The last words that we had together were words of hatred, bitterness, arguing. And she wanted him back to be able to convey to him that those things weren't important. Storms in life adjust our values and our perspective. At this point, the sailors are saying, to heck with the cargo, throw it overboard, man. We want to live. It was a change of perspective. They wanted to see uh, themselves to the other shore safely. Interesting Jonah's sleeping they're afraid, and they're praying. Heathen people are praying while God's prophet is sawing <laughs> logs. And so the captain had to come to him and rebuke him. And it's a sad thing when the world has to rebuke the church. What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so we know for whose cause this is. They cast lots, and the lot Fell upon Jonah. Your sin will find you out. Jonah paid the fare to get away from the presence of the Lord, and the lot fell on Jonah. He's sleeping, he's away from the action, but the lot fell on Jonah. God is not through with them yet. I have watched God in his mercy be patient with people up to a point, and then he gets rougher. And we're going to see how God gets rougher yet. It is amazing to see this progression of a prophet of God to the point where he doesn't care about doing the will of God at all. He's so hardened against it. Now we can see that he's already neglected a few basics. He's disobedient to God. He's neglecting his prayer life, his fellowship with God. He's rebuked by unbelievers, and he just gets harder and harder as time goes on. They said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? Where do you live? And of what people are you? I mean, just, you know, question after question after question. You know, the guy's tense, obviously. He said to him, I am a Hebrew. At least he's telling the truth, but what a bad witness in a sense. It's like a Christian living a shoddy life of immorality in front of the world and then telling the world, I'm a Christian but it was the truth. I am a Hebrew. The next phrase is a little bit um, iffy. And I fear the Lord. means I respect and reverence God. That's lip service at this point. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Second time that word is used. This time they're not afraid of the storm. They're afraid of the circumstances of the disobedience. The result of the disobedience. The consequences actually. Where are you? Where did you come from? I'm a Hebrew. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. (gasps) They were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now these sailors were not dumb. They traveled from port to port. They'd been around uh, the Philistine camp. They'd been around the ports of Israel, around the world. They heard of all the different gods the people worshipped. And they heard of the God of Israel. They heard the reputation that he opened up the Red Sea, that he smote the Egyptians, that the walls of Jericho fell down. And here Jonah says, I'm the follower of the only true God who performed all of those miracles. They were exceedingly afraid. In other words, you bummed him out and you're on our boat? We don't like you. Now they've been crying out to their gods, but they recognize this guy is different because of the reputation that his God holds. They were praying and now they're afraid. You know, I find it true in human behavior that people will try everything they can to get out of the situation themselves when they're in a fix until they run out of resources. Like these men trying to throw the cargo overboard. And when all else fails, they get religious. Not spiritual, not converted to Christ, just religious. All of a sudden, they're interested in spiritual things. They're afraid because of the consequence. The funny thing is, Jonah is not. He tells them what has happened, he knows that the storm has been sent by God. He says, I've disobeyed God. This is the whole reason that you're experiencing this. But he doesn't repent. What a stubborn guy. And so they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. Listen to his answer. He said, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And the sea will become calm, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. (laughs) Jonah, come on, take a hint. Now wouldn't you at this point give up? You've run from God. God's pursued you. You know that the storm is because God has sent the storm in your path to wake you up. You throw the cargo over. Everybody prays to their God. It doesn't work. You get pinned. The lot falls on you. If Jonah would have repented, I believe at that point God would have calmed the sea. Just to show you how stubborn he is. Just throw me overboard. I'd rather die than do God's will. That's stubborn. Instead of saying, I repent, just throw me overboard, kill me. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Third time that word is used, but now it's in a different context. It means reverential respect and fear. Their experiences caused them to be converted to that God whom they saw Jonah representing falsely. They feared the Lord, and notice this. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, if they would have made vows before, I wouldn't have been too impressed. But they made vows after it calmed out. You know, a lot of people make foxholes converge God, if you just get me out of here, I promise. They did it after it calmed, they saw the results and they feared the Lord exceedingly. Now, verse 17. Now, by the way, don't worry, Jonah is stubborn. But don't worry, God is able to match him. There has never been a person God has been unable to match. You have a friend that you think, oh, he's beyond reach. I mean, that guy's so stubborn, he could never get saved. He's so disobedient and rebellious against God, he's, I just have written him off. <laughs> You'd be surprised what God can do. God can send a storm. God can send a great fish. God can put your arm behind you back, your back till you say, uncle. We have ways. And God, in His deep love, knows how to pursue. And He's doing it to Jonah. So He prepared, I like that. The Lord prepared. It wasn't just a fish happened to be there. He prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, the question arises is such a thing possible? The argument has gone something like, as we said, there isn't a fish that big or a whale that big. Their mouth isn't that big, there's no air. Actually, research has found that not to be true. There is the sperm whale, whose mouth is 20 feet long, 15 feet tall, and 9 feet wide. They have found within the belly of such great uh, mammals the giant squid intact and still alive after several days, which is larger than a man. And it's actually interesting, if you were to look up Encyclopedia Britannica, the idea of a man surviving in a whale. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce tried to do this, and he found limited information, so he wrote Encyclopedia Britannica. They sent him back four pages of information and sightings of how men have survived being in the belly of great fishes or whales for several days. The most recent was in 1891. When off the Falkland Islands there were a couple vessels, one capsized, a couple people died, one man man was found missing, they suspected him to be. No, they didn't know where he was. When they harpooned a whale, brought him to shore, they cut open the belly and the guy was in there still alive. Because of the high content of vitamin A, he was bleached yellow. He had lost all of his hair because of the acid in the stomach. He looked really weird, but he was still alive. (laughs) And uh, Boyce, in his research, says, As to whether a man could survive in a whale's stomach, the Britannica article maintains that he could, though in circumstances of great discomfort. There would be air to breathe of a sort. It is needed to keep the animal afloat. But there would be great heat, about 104 to 108 degrees Fahrenheit. Unpleasant contact with the animal's gastric juices might easily affect the skin, but the juices would not digest living matter. Otherwise, they would digest the walls of the creature's own stomach. So God prepared this animal, this mammal, to swallow Jonah. And look how stubborn Jonah is. He was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. You'd think that the moment he was gobbled, he'd say, okay, enough is enough. I give up, man. He sat there (laughs) angry, pouting, determined for three days and three nights, adamant as stone that he is not going to go to Nineveh. I'd rather die. Three days and three nights. (laughs) I love chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed. Didn't do it right away took three days and three nights. But finally, he's up against the wall and he cries, Uncle. Then he prayed. Nothing like good old trials to get us to pray. Nothing like a little affliction to sharpen our communication skills with the Most High God. David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I seek your word. And sometimes I'm convinced that God sends or allows things to come our way because God hasn't heard from us in a while. We're so self-confident, self-dependent. God wants us dependent upon Him. And sometimes we will just, by our own disobedience, pay the fare and reap the consequences and go away from the presence of God. And then eventually God intervenes. And when God intervenes, we might be adamant, but eventually we'll break and we'll say, Oh, God! And God will just rejoice. Man, I haven't heard from you in a long time. Good to hear from you. How you doing? (laughs) Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. And he said, listen to this great prayer. I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. (laughs) And here's the gracious part. And he answered me. Out of the belly of hell I cried. And you heard my voice. This answers the question, by the way, why God allows his children to go through tough times. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, shouts to us in our pain. Affliction is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God said, Whom I love I rebuke and I chasten. Out of the belly of hell I cried out, and you heard my voice. Before we jump and finish this prayer, well, let's just finish the prayer. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I've been cast out of your sight. That's what really ate Jonah up. Eventually he saw what being separated from the presence of God could mean. I will look again towards your holy temple. I can imagine Jonah trying to figure, now which way is east? I've got to face Jerusalem when I pray the waters encompassed me, even to my soul, the deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head." I just can't help but crack up reading that. You picture this little ornery prophet, yellow from vitamin A content, lost all of his hair, seaweed around his head, and now he's praying to God. He says, God, you had me in a quarter. You had seaweed wrapped around my head. The deep closed around me; weeds were wrapped around my head. I went to the moorings of the mountains; the earth, with its bars, closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought me up from up my life from the pit, O oh, Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went to you, into your holy temple. Here's the lesson he learns: those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. You could loosely translate that. Those who flake out on God, tie their own noose. Those who regard worthless idols, forsake their own mercy. The word worthless means vain, unable to satisfy. An idol is a replacement. Now, it doesn't say Jonah was worshiping idols, but he admits to it here because an idol is a replacement of devotion. Anytime you replace devotion to God by devoting your life to some other master passion, you have an idol. It could be a relationship, could be an object, could be a profession, a job. In this case it was Jonah himself. His prayer was, My kingdom come, my will be done in heaven as it is in earth. It's in it for me. He was his own idol. He wanted to take this princess cruise ship to Spain. He thought, I'm just going to hang out on the coast of the Mediterranean and just forget this profit business. He says, you know what? Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. God wants to be merciful. But when you flake out on God and run from God, you're forsaking the very one who can distribute that mercy to you. God wants to be so merciful. They forsake their own mercy but I will sacrifice to you. With the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. And he probably in that point said, All right, I'll go to Nineveh. I'll do it. And now he says, Okay, I'll pay my vows. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. (laughs) All right, go get him, God. You know... As we've said, God is patient. God lets us pay the fare. He lets us do even disobedient things. And we pay the consequences. He'll let you go so far. But there comes a time when God is persistent. You want to wrestle? God will wrestle with you. I've heard people say, oh, I'm so worried about this person. She's backslidden. Well, let's pray for her. Have you spoken to her? Oh, I've spoken to her, but she won't listen. She's so, she says she's so bitter at God. and She's so rebellious. Hey, don't worry about her. Worry for her. God will get her. God can chase her. God can wrestle her. Just like God wrestled Jacob. Just like God got a hold of Jonah. And you see, that's God's mercy. God was not quick to write Jonah off. Now, if you and I were God, we'd think, you know, get rid of this guy. Why pursue him? Let him go to Spain. Get a younger prophet. There's lots of people out there who'd like to serve God. I'm sure that there's some prophets in the waiting whom if God spoke to and said, Hey, Shmuel, go to Nineveh. Hey, God, I've been waiting to do something for you. I'll go. But you see, this is the beautiful thing about God. God is just as interested in the worker as in the work getting done. Now, most bosses that fire a guy like Jonah, not God. God is interested in getting the job done. He was interested in the Ninevites, but he was also interested in Jonah. God wants to do a work through your life. He desires for you and I to be his vessels, to convey his love to a broken world. He wants you to be used dramatically, dynamically, and have a fruitful ministry. God desires that, to work through your life. But God also wants to work in your life, to change you, And you might be stubborn, but God loves you just that much to dog you till you listen. The Holy Spirit's been called the hound of heaven. And if you felt his pressure, you know what I'm talking about. When God doesn't let you go. Spoke to a guy a couple weeks ago. I've been encouraging him to get into the ministry for a long time. I just see God's hand in his life. And he said, I know, I know, I know. God and I, we've had a lot of conversations about this. I know he's been trying to get my attention. I just haven't done it yet, but I know God's finger has been pointing on my life. And God pursued Jonah as God pursues any of you. Beautiful story comes from Switzerland about a woman on vacation, and she's walking up through the glens. If you ever walk through Austria and Switzerland, oh, the way they keep their animals in these beautiful, uh, rolling hills. And she was having this wonderful time walking in the early mornings in summer of Switzerland, and she saw a shepherd keeping sheep, so she went over. And she was just watching the shepherd tenderly keep his sheep. And she saw off in the corner a little lamb lying on some straw with a broken leg. And the woman said, that's interesting. How did that little lamb break its leg? And the shepherd smiled and said, I broke it. You what? That's right. I went up to it and broke its leg. Why? He said, because I'm a good shepherd. You see, this sheep was leading everyone astray. When I tried to lead the flock, this sheep would get out ahead and run the other direction and cause other sheep to go, to scatter. It was a menace. It got my sheep into more trouble, and it would never, I tried to work with it, but it would never be obedient. So I just walked up to it and broke its leg. She said, I don't understand. He said, Lady, don't worry about this sheep. Let me tell you something. As soon as I broke its leg, I bandaged the leg and set this little sheep upon the straw. The next day I came and tried to feed that little lamb, and that little lamb tried to bite my finger. So I wouldn't feed it that whole day. But the second day, that little lamb was so hungry it took my food. I said, Lady, that sheep, that little lamb will be okay. And when he's recovered and his leg is mended, he will be the most obedient sheep I have docile and obedient, and I did this for His sake and the sake of the flock. We don't like to recognize these truths in the Scripture, but Exodus 4, God says, Who made the blind? Who made the lame? As well as the healthy and so forth. Is it not I, the Lord? God said, Jeremiah, I've called you as a prophet among the nations to break, to tear down, and then to build up. And sometimes God has to break down to get us to cry uncle before he can build us up. Now Jonah says, okay, I'll pay the vow. Salvation is of the Lord. You want me to go to Nineveh? All right. All right. Whale, vomit Jonah up on land. Now Jonah is a broken man. (laughs) He's ready. He probably will never take another cruise on a boat in his life. He will probably turn down a fish dinner if it's offered. He won't even wear a fish necklace. He's burnt out on fish. He just wants to obey God. He probably walked f- over now 500 miles. and uh, He probably made quite an impact on the Ninevites. Here's a man with yellow skin, brown blotches, no hair, smells like vomit. <laughs> Obviously he's been doing something he ought not to do, and perhaps the reputation of Jonah it was so outlandish at that time that it spread across the king's highway from Israel into Syria and into the Assyrian kingdom of Nineveh. Maybe they heard about it. They were waiting for him. So, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. He's the God of the second chance, and the third chance, and the fourth chance, and the 999th chance. You've got got lots of chances on this earth. Now, after you die you don't have any more chances, but you get them all here. He's the God of the second chance, and God loves to restore people. God's into restoring things. There was a man who was visiting his friend in a large suburb in Chicago, Illinois. As he was driving through the city, he noticed a park, a mile-square park. Mile square. There was a lake in the middle of the park. There were swans swimming in the lake. People walking to and fro in this park. And there were benches and kids flying kites. And he had never seen such a beautiful park in all of his life. And he turned to his friend who lived in that part of Chicago and he said, you know, I don't think I've ever seen an inner city park as gorgeous as this one. It's lovely. And the man laughed. He said, you should have seen it three years ago. That used to be the city dump. But the city undertook this massive restoration project to take a dump and make it a park, and that's what it looks like today. God doesn't dump those who fail Him. God will restore them. And the word of the Lord will come the second time. Have you failed God? You come back to Him, and you say, I'll pay my vow, salvation is of the Lord, and you'll hear God's voice again. It's only one step back. You may have taken many steps away from God, it's only one step back. You don't have to retrace, you just say, Lord. The word of the Lord will come to you a second time. And here's the word of the Lord, arise, go to Nineveh. Same message. Hadn't changed. That great city and preached to the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. In other words, being 19 miles in diameter took three days to get around it in extent. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk and he cried out and he said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now you're about to see the world's greatest revival greater than anything you've ever heard of in history. Billy Graham, even in his ministry, between 1947 and 1977 preached to 53.6 million people. He's preached to many more altogether. And during that time he saw 1.6 million people converted with decisions for Christ. That's being used by God. But there were between four and six million people that lived in Nineveh, and we're going to see how all of them came to the Lord. That's why Jesus said, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And a greater than Jonah is here. Now, it's not a long sermon, as you can see. It's just, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Really, not a message of love, not a message of with great points and illustrations, just, you know, you can just picture him. Jonah's still burnt, bent out of shape at Nineveh. Forty days and you're all burnt toast. (laughs) And he was just waiting around to watch it happen. He didn't expect these kind of results. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid down his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the wicked uh, violence that is in his hands. Who can tell? This is the king now. He has more compassion than Jonah. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil ways, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God's response is that he withheld judgment. God was gracious. God was merciful. That's what bothered Jonah they repented, God relented. Now, God did not change his mind. He is immutable. He changes not. So what do you do with verses of Scripture that say God relented, or as King James says, God repents? Well, you have to match it with other verses that say God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. God does not change. He's immutable. So why is there this language? Because, well, Theologians call these anthropomorphisms. That's where you write about God in terms that human beings can understand. This was a contingent promise of judgment, obviously. Forty days in your history. But because they changed, in response to that change, God was merciful. God is grace. That's part of the character of God. And so it says He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Literally, he fell into a rage. He wanted roast Ninevites. He didn't want to see God's mercy. He hated the Ninevites. You know, it's... Imagine an evangelist. After a crusade, after a successful crusade where thousands of people come forward, going back to his friends like, I'm so angry that people responded to my invitation tonight. They actually came forward and received Christ. That, that bums me out. But he's angry because he knew something about God and he had a deep-seated bigotry against the Ninevites. Hmm. Our Lord wasn't was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. <laughs> Therefore, now, O Lord, please just let me die. Take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. This shouldn't surprise you in, in some sense, because There is still prejudice and bigotry and animosity among God's people. One person said that the church is like Noah's ark, were it not for the storm on the outside, you couldn't stand the stink on the inside. In some cases that's true, isn't it? Sometimes the biggest sword fights don't occur with the sword of the Spirit against your real enemy, the devil, but Christians cutting one another up, backbiting. Like Jonah, can't stand to see him blessed. Just let me die. Better for me to die than to live. And the Lord, kind of like a counselor here, just asked a question: Is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah went outside the city. He didn't even say a word. Sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat under it in the shade, till he might see what would become of the city. He just was waiting. Okay, let's just say I'll wait forty days. Maybe fire will fall from heaven. And the Lord God prepared a plant. God so gracious, and made it come up and cover Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from misery. (laughs) Oh, Lord. You know, at that you think, oh, he just would break and his heart would melt. Well, he had an emotion, so Jonah was very grateful for the plant. God, thank you. This is great. Yeah, love it. As long as you bless me, I love it. Keep blessing me, God. As the morning dawned, the next day God prepared a worm so that it damaged the plant, and it withered. It happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head. Serves him right. So that he grew faint, and he wished death for himself, and he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. This boneheaded guy. I'd have gotten rid of him a long time ago. God has a habit of choosing the weirdest people to do his work. The Lord said, You will just look at us. The Lord said, and here's the, here's the message here for Jonah catch it. You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Here you are, you're so happy for this plant, and you were so filled with rage and emotion and anger because your little plant's gone. Now listen, you care about this form of life. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand persons who cannot discern between their right and left hand, in other words, children? Just children alone, there's over a hundred thousand kids. You don't even care for the children of Nineveh, Jonah? You'd rather see them wiped out? You care about your little plant. You know, I would would bring this message to all of the uh, Greenspeace people, the environmentalists, and the animal rights activists who believe in abortion. I'm not saying all of them do, but you do find a thread running, and, and I was in New York City. And in front of the Avon building there were people taking a chunk out of their day with placards, expensive placards, with pictures of minks and uh, things that uh, they killed to make perfume out of. And they were just demonstrating the fact that you're killing these animals for the benefit of man, or for the whatever the, whatever they call decadence of man. And I walked up to a lady and I said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe in abortion? She said, yes. I believe in the right to choose. I said, I just, I said, you have got your values so mixed up. Save the whales. Save the little plants. Save the little yellow-winged bees in Colorado. But, hey, we have a right to choose. Well, doesn't the hunter have a right to choose? I mean, if you're going to diminish human life and talk about the environment... That's like Hinduism. You devalue human life and raise up other life. And you worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. God gave the sanctity of life and God has given us not to abuse these things. And if people abuse these things, I think that they should be stopped. I think to ruin the environment is wrong. I think to torture an animal is wrong. I have not a problem with killing an animal to eat it. But to take and twist the value system, so that human life can be degraded and taken from a womb, and you know, it's like Jonah. Jonah, you're worried about this stupid little plant, and you don't even have compassion on the great city of Nineveh, where there's 100, over a hundred thousand kids, and also, and God's even interested in their animals at this point, and also much livestock. So you're worried about the plant. Hey, Jonah, there's livestock over there. Maybe that'll make you compassionate. The people don't. You're worried about your plant. Well, there's animals there too besides kids. You know, there's innocent creatures. They haven't done anything. The kids didn't do anything to merit judgment. Neither did the livestock. They're innocent. You yeah, the adults, so they've been wicked. But these kids, they're innocent. They haven't had the chance to be malicious against your people. And you don't care about them. The bigotry that Jonah had. Now, In closing, I want you just to uh, notice a couple things, and that is, you notice in verse 1 of chapter 1 and verse 1 of chapter 3 that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And Jonah was given God's word to bring to the Ninevites, and it was at the word of the Lord, Jesus said, that Nineveh repented. At the preaching of Jonah as he delivered here the message or the Word of God. Every major revival throughout the history of mankind has centered upon the love of the Word of God. I have yet to see a revival center around liberalism the destroying of the Word of God, the disbelief in the Word of God, the idea that, well, we really can't believe the Bible. I've never seen great revival occur out of that. I've just seen dead, insipid lives result. But if you examine every revival, you see that there is a love and a gravitation for the Word of God and expository preaching of the Word, in every one of them. Secondly, when there was a revival, it always began with God's people, as it did here. God had to bring Jonah to the place where he was obedient. And then God used an obedient servant to affect the lives of others and many people turned to the Lord. Now a lot of times we bemoan the fact that there's no revival. I guess it depends what you mean by it, but I've seen it in many parts of the world. True, legitimate revival. Yeah, well, how come we don't have it here? We need real revival. Well, you know what? Let it begin with you. Gypsy Smith, the great evangelist, was asked, what is the formula of success for revival? He said, simple, go home, close the door, kneel down on the floor and draw a circle around yourself, and pray for God to revive everything on the inside of that circle. And when God has answered your prayer, revival is afoot. Revival begins with you. Revival begins with me. It's individual, it's personal. Let God get a hold of your life. You be obedient to God. Don't cry out against the wickedness of the world until you're obedient and you're supple to the Master's touch. And what about those who are not? Well, the Lord can prepare winds, fish, heat, wind, and worms. And at any given point, you can say, Uncle! Why does God do this? Because God doesn't want us, you to settle for second best. God wants the highest for you. And we often don't know what that is. We think we know better than God. It's typical. Children think that of their parents. You know, there comes a point when mom and dad, at the very beginning stages, my son thinks, you know, I, I can do no wrong. You know, dad's the best guy, man. I want to hang out with dad today. When we're at church together and we have two separate cars, he'll say, mom, I don't want to ride home with you. I'm going to ride home with dad. I can do no wrong now, but now there'll come a time. I remember when that time came in my life. I looked at my dad and I thought, you're not all that smart. (laughs) And then a few years later I thought, you know, I'm a whole lot smarter than you are. (laughs) Then as I went on in my teenage years, I thought, you know, Dad, you can learn a few lessons from me. Now it's full circle. I go, boy, was I dumb. Oh, just believe now that God knows a lot more about running life than you do. And when God gives you a command, don't run the other direction. It's interesting that David said, Though I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there to hold me. Wouldn't it be interesting, as a strange twist of fate, if the name of the ship that Jonah was on was called Wings of the Morning? It could have been, who knows? But he went away from the presence of the Lord into the depths of the sea, but God was there. For Jonah said, I cried out to you in that, in that belly, and you answered me. And he ended up by saying, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Those who flake out on God tighten their own noose. That's a, that's a loose paraphrase the highest life, the highest form of life, the most satisfying form of life is an obedient life. The most frustrating life is to say, I'm a believer, but walk in disobedience, to not let God have full control of your life. You know, riding the fence, and it's horrible. Like the farmer who had the apple trees in his backyard, and he said, You know, I've got that one apple tree on the side of my property, and the trunk is on my side of the property, but half of the branches go onto the other side. And at harvest time, I'm out there beating the apples on my side. But then the kids and the moms and everybody else, since it grows on the other side, beat the apple tree from the other side to get the apples. He said, you know, that tree is the most beat up tree that I have because it's on the edge. It's not where it should be. It's on the edge. And Christians who live on the edge, you get awfully beat up awfully frustrated. You want abundant life, let it be a life of submission and obedience to God, of zealous commitment to Him, committed to His principles, committed to His Word, committed to taking the gospel to the world. Your life will be full. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You want a frustrating life, just say, I'm a Christian and and don't follow the ways of God. Don't release territory in your life to God. You'll Just be miserable. Release it. Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first how to please God. Instead of yourself and your own self-satisfaction and your self-betterment, how can I please God? What would God want me to do? And you'll find that your life is full and rich. That's what God wants for you. God doesn't have a bummer for for you. God has life 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 for you.